I'm going to be speaking this morning and uh, throughout the summer we, and I remember saying this about five weeks ago, we were going to talk about those books in the New Testament that have about one chapter. So you would think that by now we probably should be pretty much finished with them. Um, but that is not the case. Uh, we did talk about Philemon uh, one Sunday morning, but that seems like uh, a long time ago. Uh, I think Glenn Madden, a couple of weeks ago, by way of video, spoke on the first part or part of um, Second John, or it might have been, yeah, Second John. Um, but in between there, we had uh, baptisms, we had uh, other things happen in our church, that uh, all of which were very good. Uh, but this morning, we, I'm going to say we're still sort of stuck in, in Second John, but I don't really feel stuck there. I believe there's, uh, there's something that God has for us uh, from that book that we need to hear. And I want to say we've already made mention of that in songs of worship to our Heavenly Father. That song that you are a good father, it's who you are, it's who you are. Uh, I had never heard that song. It's a beautiful song. That I am loved by my Heavenly Father. It's who I am. It's who I am. Um, there's truth and there's love written all over that song. And it kind of is how John so often speaks in his letters to the church about truth and about love. And Glenn spoke of the fact that ultimate truth does exist. And our understanding of that truth shapes how we see our world and it shapes how God calls us to respond to the world. And Glenn would say, I think, that we need to be unapologetic about truth and absolutely deliberate about love. And this morning, I want to focus on the aspect of truth that I believe John highlighted in this letter to the church. And if I was to summarize my thoughts this morning, I would use the words of Jesus himself who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I think we need to listen carefully to John. Uh, John spoke often about love about the love of God for the world. He also talked about the love that we need to show within the family of God, that it is the ultimate testimony of the church is how we love one another. John said, they will know, and by they, he's talking about people who are not with us this morning, people we may rub shoulders with during the week, they will know we are Christians by our love. John often referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And while sometimes people take shots at John for using that phrase as if he was loved more than others, but I think it actually for John simply expressed his thankful and grateful heart that God called him perhaps a very ordinary, rough around the edges, maybe even sometimes volatile fisherman, and said, come and follow me. 
And I think rather than criticize John, and I think that song, Curtis, did it so beautifully, we should adopt that phrase, that you are a child that God loves. I am a child that God loves. It's a phrase that identifies us and describes our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's why the simple song, Jesus Loves Me, carries with it such power. And when I thought about that, I thought again of Dwayne's testimony. A number of weeks ago before baptism about singing that song at the workplace, Jesus Loves Me. And it's interesting that John, who talks so much about love, was given a rather interesting, I don't know, nickname is probably not the right phrase, but I'll use that. He was given the name Son, Sons of Thunder, and he was given that name by Jesus himself. So I'm thinking there is probably an aspect of John's personality that also speaks to strength and maybe volatility, and I think both aspects of John's personality are wrapped up in this letter. And John begins by reminding the church and commending the church for its love. And he then goes on using very straightforward language to challenge and even command the church to guard the truth of Jesus Christ. That same Jesus who would have called John by that time, maybe even 50 years earlier, and said to him, John, come and follow me. This letter is about John saying we need to guard the truth of Jesus Christ. John writes this letter likely towards the end of his life. Um, likely towards the end of the first century. And he is writing well after the other apostles have either died or been martyred for their faith. And he would certainly have been advanced in years. But within the early church, the voice and the letters of John would have carried much weight. I think it's interesting. When, uh, remember going to school and assuming that everything I read in the history book was correct. That's kind of exactly how it happened, because it's in the book. History book can't be wrong. Since then, I've learned that history books often present a somewhat sanitized, often edited version of history, sometimes leaving out stories or events or, let's say, policies that a country was not proud of, so you don't mention those in the history book. Most people would say that history is best represented by the stories of people who experience things firsthand. And it's why families, many families, encourage their grandparents or even great-grandparents to record their story before they die so that family history is, you might say, preserved and even guarded. John is writing Two people for whom the death and resurrection of Jesus, for many of them, would have been a historical event. Something that happened before most of them had been born. And the power of John's writing, 
I believe, lies in the fact that his words are inspired by the Spirit of God and they are verified by his own life. That John could say to the church, I know what I am speaking about because I was there. I talked with Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I touched Jesus physically. And I want to say if the Gospel of John, which is much earlier in the New Testament, although it also was written towards the end of the first century, if, if the Gospel of John represents John, I'll say, writing as a historian, kind of recording the events that he saw and was part of, the letters that John wrote have John speaking more like a pastor or a theologian. He is writing in order to protect the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when John writes this letter, he's not writing to the church and saying you need to persevere under persecution. He is not encouraging them to be strong under trials or suffering. He is warning the church of false teaching and false teachers who have become a real and present danger to the church. And John says that if teachers or leaders begin to distort the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, he says, reject those people. If they're on the outside, don't let them in. Don't open the door to them. Don't give them any encouragement. Kind of harsh words for someone who wrote so much about love. For John, the centrality of Jesus Christ is a black and white issue. And it remains a black and white issue for the church today. That you, if you lose the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will inevitably succumb to the wisdom of man. To the wisdom of this world. Paul often called it the speculations of man. I want to read... Um, from this letter. And John says to this church, how happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. And I want to say I believe that's the core reason that John writes this letter. He says, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Jesus Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home. And when John uses the word home, he might also have equally used the word church because many churches met in homes. Don't invite them in. 
do not give them any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. As I say, that language does not sound particularly loving. But John makes absolutely no apologies for it. That what John is addressing relates to the centrality of Jesus Christ. His claim to be son of man and son of God. God in the flesh, God in human form, suffering on our behalf, rising victorious over sin and death. And today, this morning, sitting at the right hand of God, intervening on our behalf. It's beautiful. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. He still has the power to forgive sins and set people free. It's obvious that when Paul is... Paul, sorry, John is writing that questionable teaching and probably questionable leaders have begun to challenge or question or distort the truth of who Jesus is. And John, I said, says, I believe, guard and protect that truth. Tamper with it and you will lose the power of the gospel. In 1 John 1, verse 3, John wrote this, We proclaim to you, and I think this is so critical, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may share our joy. And it's why John speaks with so pa such passion for the simple truth of the gospel and with such passion against those who would distort it. That John understands the danger of a diluted gospel. I believe the minute you question the centrality of Jesus Christ, you open the door for man to assume a place on the throne that belongs to Jesus alone. And I believe a distorted view of Jesus is inevitably replaced by an exaggerated view of man. If you replace the power of the cross with the fingerprints of man, you have sacrificed the truth of the gospel on the altar of human speculation. The Bible said you have actually exchanged truth for a lie. In 1 John 2, verse 21 to 23, John wrote this, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Some versions say an Antichrist, against Christ, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. In 1 John 4, verse 1 to 3, he said, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, 
which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. Those who reject Jesus as the Son of God, those who teach that Jesus did not come in the flesh, those who remove the literal suffering of Jesus in the redemptive work of God are all expressions of being anti-Christ, against Jesus. And John would say, those teachings began to surface in the first century, and I would say they are still here in the 21st century. While John doesn't necessarily give a name to the false teaching that's generally accepted, accepted that he is likely talking about Gnosticism. And Gnosticism wasn't so much a separate religion, rather it was a somewhat convoluted mix of religious thought, philosophy, and even mysticism. Gnostics believe that salvation or enlightenment could only be achieved through acquiring special knowledge, and this special knowledge was not in acquired by intellectual study, but by some higher sense of spiritual awareness. I think today we might say it has a bit of a new age flavor to it. I am no expert on Gnosticism, but in my reading there seem to be two common themes within the various expression of Gnosticism that challenged who Jesus was. One was their notion of a dualistic view of life, a separation of the physical from the spiritual, that the physical was inherently evil and evil from the beginning. The Bible says God created and he said it was good. Gnostics say all of creation, because it is physical, was inherently evil. That creation was flawed because it was created by some lesser God. And that enlightenment involved escaping from the physical world by acquiring special knowledge or gnosis that would lead to spiritual awareness. Secondly, and I think these two ideas are 100% linked Many strands of Gnosticism questioned or denied the humanity of Jesus. Since the physical is evil, Jesus obviously did not inhabit a real physical human body. And since his physical body was not truly human, neither did it endure suffering. And I believe this is where John's words are the harshest. Those who deny Jesus Christ came in a real body are deceivers. As I thought about that, and as I say, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on Gnosticism, but it made me think of other philosophies and other religions. I'll call them religions or understandings based on the speculations of man and how so often those religions seem to have within their framework some sense of spiritual, I'm going to call it hierarchy. Those who are truly enlightened 
those who maybe are in the process of trying to be enlightened and maybe those who simply don't get it. I believe that any religion that identifies or characterizes people according to some arbitrary spiritual hierarchy has embraced the realm of man-made speculation. They have replaced the truth of the gospel of Jesus with a religion manipulated by the mind of man. That you have moved from the grace of God available to every man and woman and child to a religion of human distinctions. A number of years ago, we had a young man who stayed in our house for, well, probably a bit too long, but stayed in our house for a while. And um, probably two months ago, roughly, he popped by to pay us a visit. And we had a very interesting conversation that, that evening. He, he would certainly identify himself as a spiritual young man, uh, comes from a Mormon background, uh, from a family, some of whom believe very strongly. Um, and he was struggling with his own, I'll say, spirituality. What, what, does, what do I believe? And he talked about Mormonism. And it was amazing. I, I know very little about other religions. I haven't studied them. But he had mentioned, I think, to his mom that he was struggling with believing it. And she had said to him, well, read. Read the book. Don't listen to what other people say. Read the book. And he did. At the end of reading the book, he said, I still don't. I can't embrace that. I don't get that. She said, read the book again. So she, he read the Book of Mormon again. And his comment was at the end, the second time, it seems so contrived. And I thought it was an insightful comment from a young man who understands how this religion works. And whether it's Mormonism, whether it's Scientology, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, and probably countless other religions, I believe those religions have succumbed to a religion of man. Some place at the top of all of these religions' organizational charts lie the powerful, the truly enlightened, dictating, in a way, truth, to those below. And Paul and John would say that kind of religion flies in the face of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ available to all who accept the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Jesus said, as many as believe in him, to them he gave the power, the right, the, the privilege to become children of God. The simple truth of the gospel is that fishermen and philosophers share equally in what it means to be a child of God and what it means to be reborn. There is no special dispensation for lucky, some lucky enlightened ones. John says, be on guard for any people who preach a different view of Jesus. Paul made this comment to Timothy. He said, Avoid people who waste their time in endless discussions of myths 
and spiritual pedigrees. Interesting. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this comment to the Corinthian church. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul asks, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, and we preach Christ crucified. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And I love what he says next. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when Jesus put his arms around you and called him to yourself. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised thing and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, I think there will always be those people who are uncomfortable with the Jesus of the Bible. Our country is filled with empty churches. Churches that have diluted the gospel of Jesus with the water of human speculation. And in so doing, have lost their reason to exist. A couple of weeks ago, we were at the Caslo Jazz Festival. And uh, I happened to notice on a whole bunch of little telephone poles, an advertisement, Jesus joy jazz and I thought well that actually has quite a nice ring to it I would love to pop into a church on Sunday morning and hear some worship in a jazz style so I went on Sunday morning I went to uh, the church and I must say I was quite disappointed there was no mention of Jesus there was certainly very little joy and there certainly was absolutely no jazz. There was an elderly woman at the piano who led the singing as we had our hymn book open. And I talked to some of the people, and they talked about, well, we're just struggling to find a way to keep this church door, the church doors open. I think any church that dilutes the gospel of Jesus Christ in a desire to become relevant will actually lose their relevance. And it's evident today. Churches that seek to reinvent themselves 
by adjusting their message to accommodate the shifting sands of this world's culture, the shifting sands of this world's morality. And rather than become effective spiritual forces, inevitably they close their doors. Religion apart from Jesus Christ is empty and it's powerless. I recall our time in Vancouver about a year ago. And uh, we had, I attended a service and we also attended, a, again, it was kind of a jazz worship service on a Sunday afternoon. The name of Jesus never mentioned. Pathways to God were described as varied as there are people. Pretty much allows people to create God in their own image. I do not want to serve a God in my image. I want to serve a God who is so far above me that his ways are beyond my understanding. It allows people to express faith in terms of their own understanding, which I say is so limited. It's a subtle way of putting man on the throne. The throne that is reserved for the power and authority of Jesus, who lived, who died, and who rose again. I think it's Paul that says to some that message is going to be offensive. To some that truth sounds arrogant. To some that truth is seen as foolishness. But the truth is that it remains the power of God that leads to salvation. In his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus... John Piper wrote this. The glory of Jesus is that he is always out of sync with the world. And therefore, always relevant for the world. If he fit nicely, he would be of little use. The effort to remake the Jesus of the Bible so he fits the spirit of one generation makes him feeble in another Better to let him be who he is. Because it is often the offensive side of Jesus that we need the most. You know, as a church, I say how we choose to live out that truth is also critical. If the truth of Jesus Christ is seen as being exclusive and even offensive, I would say so be it. But I want to remind us as a church that how we live it out should be attractive to the world around us. And it's a challenge of the church. It's the challenge of living out truth in love. I think there are aspects about what we believe, not only in terms of doctrine, but in terms of lifestyle that increasingly are becoming offensive to our world increasingly becoming offensive within our cities. John would say, hang on to that truth, live it out in love. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11. I'm reading this because I believe it just talks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the Jesus that John is so passionate about guarding. That is the truth, he says for the church. Don't let go of that. It's the Jesus who continues to call children, men, women, rich and poor, old and young, educated, uneducated, to be equal partners in the kingdom of God. As a church, I think we need to continue to bring captive every thought, bring captive every speculation to the truth of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He who believes in me has life and in fact has it more abundantly. This morning I want to say may we continue to humble ourselves before this Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. To acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, as creator and sustainer and as the guardian of our souls. May we lift him high as we gather as his church here in Lake Country. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for the writing of John the Apostle. This man, God, who walked with Jesus. This man who knew of the love of Jesus for a broken world. Father, as I was reading this letter to the church, it's a reminder to us to hang on dearly to the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus still has the power to save, to draw people to himself. And Father, may we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, would you encourage us, give us freedom to share who we are and Father, teach us how to live it out in a way that is loving and not condemning. Father, even yourself, Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through Jesus could be saved. Help us, Father, to be effective in that kingdom work, even here in Lake Country, in Kelowna, wherever we are. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Our Lord and our Savior, amen.